Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with Tobias Ruprecht and Bogdan Jakob, who are the authors, along with Lubica Spaskowska and James Mark, of 1989, A Global History of Eastern Europe, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Welcome, Tobias and Bogdan. Well, glad to, glad to be here. So just a little background on Drs. Ruprecht and Jakob. Dr. Ruprecht is a global historian with a particular interest in the history of state socialism and neoliberalism. His research has mostly addressed Soviet and Eastern European encounters with the Global South and economic reform debates in socialist countries. He taught Russian and Latin American history at Aarhus and Exeter universities before joining in 2020, the Berlin Research Cluster, Contestations of the Liberal Script, which focuses on economists and marketization debates in Eastern Europe and China in the late 20th century. Dr. Jakob is a researcher at the Institute of History at the Romanian Academy in Bucharest. His work centers on the role of Eastern European experts, such as historians and physicians, in international organizations during the 20th century. In 2018, he coordinated a special issue on this topic for the journal East Central Europe and recently published within the international project Socialism Goes Global. He is currently completing a manuscript entitled Balkan Imaginations, UNESCO, and the Global Cold War. So, Tobias and Bogdan, how did you come to write a book about the global dimensions of 1989? Yeah, sure. Um, Maybe I make a start here. I suppose my interest in Eastern Europe's transformation had a rather unusual starting point. I was teaching Latin American history at Exeter at the time, and uh, I was studying mostly modern Chilean history, so the socialist government of the early 1970s, and especially the military dictatorship and its economic reforms under Augusto Pinochet and his free market advisors and ministers. And I found out that in the 1980s and 1990s, there was quite some interest in this authoritarian transformation model across the socialist world, from Poland to the Soviet Union, uh, and even in China. And at Exeter, there were two research groups led by our co-author, James Mark, that were looking at the transnational history of late state socialism and at the transformation from 1989. And this was kind of a natural fit. And we started working together. We published a couple of articles together. And eventually, it was actually Cambridge University Press that approached us and asked if he wanted to write an entire monograph on the global history of 1989, which was then to come out for the 30th anniversary in the autumn of 2019. Okay, so um, in my case, uh, the interest in the topic goes back to the series of conferences that I organized with political scientist Vladimir Kismananu in Washington, D.C. between 2007 and 2012. And the central idea behind these events were um, to focus on turning points of the 20th century, 1945, 1968, 1989, and issues such as the relationship between intellectuals and dictatorship and dealing with the past. And um, 
the experience that I developed uh, through these conferences and and uh, the volumes that came out out of them gave me like a, a vision, a broader vision of post-war East European uh, uh, history in comparative and global context. Then um, another interest, uh, I developed another interest, one on Eastern European experts in international organizations and their their, their connections with post-colonial regions. Um, and when the position in the project uh, mentioned by Tobias earlier, 1989 after 1989, opened in early 2018, um, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity to bring bring together um, the, the long-term historicization of 1989 that I developed with these uh, conferences and my own work on uh, Eastern European uh, global trajectory. Well, I'm just so grateful that you authored this book because I read it for a second time now and I was even more impressed than I was the first time because, of course, I noticed details I hadn't noticed during the first reading. And I'm looking forward to assigning it in the classroom, but I think it will become an essential reference uh, for scholars as well as um, appeal to a general readership, especially because it offers this alternative reading of the Cold War by decentering it by examining Eastern Europe's global entanglements, by demonstrating that Eastern Europe was in fact not isolated, and of course by revising conventional understandings of 1989, the post-socialist transition, and also even the 80s, and I'm grateful we have this book. So I'd like to move on to the chapters now, and in your introduction, you discuss alternative but forgotten political geographies. So can you discuss uh, why these geographies were forgotten or obscured? We shouldn't forget how unexpected the political changes of 1989 to 1991 were at the time. In hindsight, the triumph of liberal democracy and free markets sometimes looked a bit like a, like a natural outcome, something that freedom-loving people behind the Iron Curtain were long struggling for. But if you look at the evidence from the 1980s, you get quite a different sense of what people were discussing as possible reform options at the time. And this was a, a much larger spectrum of political ideas, as it were, from democratic socialism to ethnic or religious nationalism or authoritarian capitalism. And these ideas were often formed as, as a result of a certain interpretation of global models. So while it's certainly true that most people in Eastern Europe were limited in their mobility, many still engaged intellectually with the wider world. And one example of such an, as you call this, alternative but later forgotten political geography would be this fascination with authoritarian capitalism amongst pro-market economists and social scientists in the 1980s. And the idea that the Communist Party, say, in Poland or the Soviet Union would relinquish political power seemed totally far-fetched to pretty much everyone at the time. And in fact, this was hardly even discussed, but pointing to economically successful development dictatorships such as South Korea or Chile, and they could offer their communist governments a bargain. You keep political control and the privileges attached to it, but let's deregulate, privatize, globalize the economy. So in Poland, for example, liberal economists approached the president, General Jaruzelski, I'm suggesting to turn him into the quote-unquote Polish Pinochet. And these ideas were even combined with conservative Catholic values that would make such reforms more, say, palatable for the broader population. 
that too with explicit reference to Chile. And then after the unexpected collapse of the communist regimes in 1989, and after the quick transition to liberal democracies in most of Eastern Europe, at least, such proposals were very quickly, conveniently forgotten, let's say. And the liberal economists who were, who were now indeed overseeing economic reforms could present themselves as spearheads of liberal democracy, which they perhaps were in the 1990s, but this is not what they were before 1989. To add to what Bia said, and thank you again for your kind words about our book, I would say that our book is, is, is also trying to uh, point out that 1989 was not the beginning of globalization, of the globalization of Eastern Europe. And as it has been long argued, and only recently it has, it, this point has been criticized, uh, we show how socialist regimes already pursued their own global interconnections. Uh, a phenomenon that combined interwar or pre 1900s experiences with the ideal of a global East, the idea of uh, the socialist camp stretching across the Eurasian landmass and beyond Europe, forming a second world with uh, global ambitions. Um, so, the forgotten political geographies of post war Eastern Europe were the ones that were uh, fueled by two ideas uh, revolution and decolonization. So, in this sense, 1989 was a provincialization of Eastern Europe as um, uh, connections of the region with post-colonial spaces, um, the so-called third world, or what we call nowadays uh, the global south, were forgotten or forsaken uh, in favor of the principle of returning to Europe, that is, joining the West. Uh, in itself, this move away from post-colonial uh, toward uh, the Euro-Atlantic was uh, a tendency already noticeable since the late 1970s when most socialist states, with the exception of Yugoslavia, Romania, and Albania, um, increasingly sought to affirm their West-like Europeanness, especially in, in cultural cooperation developed under the umbrella of the uh, Conference for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So by 1980s, uh, the idea of alternative globalization driven by the socialist camp was long gone, as already affirmed by Tobias. Nevertheless, the, the uh, Eastern European multifaceted engagements with Latin America, with Africa, with Asia had a significant impact on the region and form a history that only in the past few years scholars have begun to untangle. Our book is an effort to map the way for seeing regional history from the perspective of these alternative political geographies as we take up the idea that Eastern Europe was a swing region one that often aligned with the West, but also during its history, both post-1945 and even earlier, placed itself between the, the East, the West, and the South. So you highlight the continuities between the 1980s uh, and 1989, but you also critique the liberal democratic narrative by exploring the role of these authoritarian types in negotiating a change, or at least preparing for uh, eventual change. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a combination of trying to see how um, uh, elites and dissidents uh, developed their imaginaries that led up to 1989, but at the same time uh, uh, trying to map up map out the alternatives that were shaping up uh, during the 1980s and that were closed down uh, with the with the convergence with. Western liberalism after 1989. And on the topic of elites, because those are some of your primary actors here, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about other actors who play a role in this story. So 
in addition to elites, who else uh, plays a role in this process uh, from the 80s to the 90s and to the present day? Um, and then after that, if you could talk a little bit about the sources you draw on. Yeah, let me develop perhaps a bit longer on the on the elites, because really one of our key arguments is that it was these elites and their ideological and geopolitical reorientation that were the driving force between Eastern Europe's transformation from the 70s to the 1990s. And so on the one hand, this goes against notions of 1989 as a liberal breakthrough long pushed for by liberty-seeking populations against their authoritarian governments. That's a popular perception also because of the, the TV footage that we're all familiar with uh, of the fall of the Berlin, Berlin Wall and the, uh, the masses on uh, Wenceslas Square in Prague in late 1989 and all that. But this, uh, this popular, popular element in 1989 really began relatively late. And I think it's fair to say that not everyone was taking to the street at a time demanding liberal democracy. And on the other hand, um, with this focus on elites, we also question the still very popular perception of sort of hapless Eastern Europeans who were forcefully westernized by Western governments, by Western advisors, or Western-controlled international organizations. This is not the impression you get if you read the evidence on East-West encounters, uh, that is, uh, conference reports, for example, from the time the, the memoirs of economists, which I looked at in detail. And also, I interviewed several Chileans who went to Russia and Eastern Europe as economic advisors in the early 1990s. And there were two things, amongst many other things, but two important things that they all said. First, that there was nothing new that they could tell their interlocutors about market economy, because they already knew everything about it. And second, they felt that their Eastern European peers often had much more radical ideas about deregulation and tough economic reforms than they had, than they had themselves. And we're talking about Chicago-trained Chilean free marketeers here. Many, many of them had passed in Pinochet's governments. So to answer your question about sources, we tried to get as close as possible to the worldviews of the elites, really. The elites during the transformation and to get an idea of how their views changed through their active engagement with global intellectual and geopolitical trends, rather than seeing them as someone else's puppets. So the approach of these East European elites would have been more in line with the advisors, experts you have coming from outside the region who are advocating massive structural change and obviously a neoliberal model, as opposed to perhaps portions of the population in Eastern Europe who would have expected or at least hoped for a system that was similar to Western, that is continental Western European welfare states? It's very hard to tell about a large number of people what kinds of visions for economic and other policies they have. But I think our point is kind of to say that if people take to the street against a authoritarian government, this does not necessarily mean that they want a certain path of westernization with uh, free markets. There are all kinds of things that people um, that motivate people to take to the street. And I think what, what eventually mattered in the transition was much more the disposition of the transitional elites. And these were kind of a going together of reform-oriented communists and liberal dissidents. And it was these groups that really decided on policies in the early 1990s and not so much a desire of the broad masses to have a, 
a path of westernization, free markets, and, and liberal democracy. I'd like to move on to this phrase you use, the other 1989s. And Bogdan, maybe you can address this. Yeah, it, it ties up to what, ha- what we have been discussing until now. The point that, that Tobias made earlier that uh, we argue in the book, that despite the turn toward the, the West, uh, and in spite of ideas about socialist legality, civic participation, or human rights that developed during the 1970s and the 1980s, this this liberal uh, this commitment to liberal democracy um, could be noticed only until very late. So the other 1989s are the opportunities, the the, the alternatives that existed uh, around that time, and one of them. Yes, has discussed uh, uh, the, the fascination with authoritarian modernizations in Latin America, in Spain, in East Asia. Uh, but uh, another issue is the fact that many dissidents also advocated uh, social and economic rights and more direct and participatory forms of democracy because they were suspicious about uh, the deficits of multi-party parliamentary democracy. We also have to keep in mind that uh, the defeats of 1956, so the Hungarian Revolution, 1968, the uh, Prague Spring, the, the martial law, um, these forced oppositionists not to think in terms of toppling uh, socialist regimes, but work within the, the power structure. So their political motivation, their imagination was, was restricted. So this uh, idea of other 1989s reflects 1989 as a, as a moment of violence, um, as it happened in Romania, uh, or uh, as it was sparingly used in Bulgaria, the GDR, Czechoslovakia, and Albania. Other 1989s were the ethnic conflicts that were most rampant in Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. Um, then also the, the, the idea of uh, uh, nationalist renewal, as uh, it was typical for conservative circles in Poland, Hungary, or more conservative elements of the Communist Party in Romania, or 1989 as a socialist renewal, as imagined by leaders such as Mikhail Gorbachev in the Soviet Union, Alexander Dubček in Czechoslovakia, or Ion Iliescu in, uh, in, in Romania, or renewal by uh, emulating the neo-capitalist modernization crafted by Deng Xiaoping in, in China. And there was also 1989 as democracy from below movement that sought this participatory politics that I mentioned earlier, and we have uh, uh, organizations such as the Orange Alternative and Freedom and Peace in Poland, Peace uh, Group uh, for Dialogue in Hungary, um, and the um, Lion Society in Ukraine, the People for Peace and Culture in Slovenia. However, as, uh, as, as communist elites and, and most high-profile dissidents moved from the left to the center by embracing this minimum liberal consensus, and because of conditionality through the IMF, World Bank, or the European community, these other 1989s were disciplined out through the process of what was called at the time transition. However, these ideas, uh, these alternatives 1989, um, after they were pushed in the, in the background in the context of this return to Europe, they came back in the late 2000s, reaching full visibility in the 2010s, uh, as either populist liberal counter-revolution or popular protest seeking to uh, recuperate the democratic participatory ideals of 1989. So basically, the other 1989s were not forgotten. 
and the ideas surrounding them reemerge after 2008 and become a rallying point, basically, to for individuals to argue for increased rights, the realization of the ideas and principles on which 1989 was based. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this this point actually leads to um, our our main argument that what we see in 2010s can be explained not only through what is happening in the present or the immediate present, but it has a longer history that ties in to uh, the past 1989 and the events around uh, in and around 1989. Right. And so um, obviously by obscuring these earlier 1989s, people in leadership positions uh, forgot an important part of the story that again then would return to bite them in a way. I'd like to move to chapter one now. And in chapter one, you explore Eastern Europe's global engagements. So could you discuss when these engagements began and then the impetus for them and also how they shifted then during the course of the Cold War? Yeah, sure. I mean, as you all know, the entire project of Marxist socialism was an internationalist one in theory. So it's kind of ironic, actually, that we now associate state socialism with self-isolation, with walls and with barbed wire and all that. These were, of course, a sad reality for most people in the socialist world, but there were attempts at reviving socialist internationalism in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, After Stalin died in 1953, there were attempts to revive what was seen as unspoiled Leninism, and this also included its internationalist dimension. Crucially, this happened at the against the backdrop of the retreat of European colonial powers from from their empires. And there was much hope amongst socialist leaders in Eastern Europe to create anti-imperialist alliances that would pay off politically, but also economically. And I reckon the phase of socialist internationalist euphoria ended already in the mid-1960s, when there was a clear shift to somewhat more pragmatic relationships with post-colonial states. Many large-scale socialist development projects in the global south had failed. Geopolitically, the support for socialist regimes and movements was a permanent issue in relations with the United States at the time when socialist states um, sought international recognition. So increasingly, from, from the 1970s, some Eastern European states, and especially so Poland and Hungary, and start experimenting with market elements at home and step-by-step step integrate into the world economy. So they expand trade with the capitalist West. And very crucially, they take loans from Western private banks to raise living standards at home. The Soviet Union did not borrow because they could now sell oil on the world market. But this trade and the financial links to the West that these exchanges created slowly, slowly pulled the socialist world into a process that would then later be called globalization. So how do we see these global engagements transform after 1989? And maybe a specific focus on the the early period of transition? I will um, return to to, to the point that we made earlier, um, that 1989 can be seen as a moment of deglobalization. uh, as the global south was for, forsaken uh, by uh, Eastern European uh, elites. However, um, during the early years of transition, global entanglement, despite decreasing significantly as compared to pre-1989, um, they, they kept, they were of around maybe two, two categories, I would say. 
First, uh, Eastern Europe uh, became a showcase for um, the, demo the, the democracy industry for organizations in the West, such as the Open Society Foundations or National Endowment for Democracy, to advocate the liberal model as a template for the entire post-Cold War world. Um, we show, for example, in Chapter 2, uh, how Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe played a central role in transforming uh, the UN, the body movement for new and restored democracies, uh, an initiative that had originated uh, in the South, being created in 1988 in Manila as a lobby for uh, post-colonial states to find leverage against economic conditionality imposed by the IMF and the World Bank. So Eastern Europeans played a role in transforming this initiative into one that aligned with the institutionalization of uh, Western-dominated global liberal peace. Uh, for example, in 1997, um, at the third gathering of these emerging democracies in Bucharest, the Romanian Minister of Foreign Affairs, um, who had been one of the authors of uh, Romania's first market reforms in 1990 and 1991, his name is Adrian Severin, he aban abandoned the talk, the earlier talk of alternative democratic forms and collective solidarity, to embrace Washington Consensus language of technocracy good governance that could be applied everywhere with minimal local variation. Also, Prague, for example, one of the centers of the global socialist movement during the 60s and, and the 70s, by the 1990s had become a hub of anti-communist, anti-authoritarian dissidents from places such as Vietnam, China, Myanmar, or Iraq. Um, along these lines, in the 2000s and the early 2010s, uh, uh, Eastern European governments refashioned themselves as uh, liberal anti-totalitarian democrats engaged in a global mission in various places, Iraq, uh, the former uh, Soviet space, or um, in the context of the Arab Spring. There was, however, a second form of engagement in, in the early 1990s, and that was more typical for Romania, Bulgaria, uh, or Serbia, these countries which were uh, a bit on the weight side of this uh, conversion with, with the West um, as compared to, for example, Central Europe. And elites in these countries sought to repurpose their relations with previous relations with Arab and African uh, states as a way to find alternatives to Western political and economic conditionality. Uh, however, these initiatives were uh, half-hearted and with almost no outcomes. And by mid-1990s, Elites in Romania and Bulgaria uh, followed the footsteps of the Visegrad group and overwhelmingly uh, focused on uh, EU accession. So basically, Eastern Europe uh, discards the global South in favor of richer and more promising partners. I'd like to move on to chapter two now, in which uh, you use the term low-intensity democracy. So what does low-intensity democracy refer to, and how is it germane to your analysis? This, uh, this term uh, has been uh, coined uh, in 1992 by Barry Gills and Joel Rocamora uh, in an article in the third uh, World Quarterly. And it was part of uh, earlier critiques of the growing hegemony of neoliberalism in the post-Cold War uh, world. And a side note, uh, in our book, we uh, flesh out um, what we surprisingly discovered significant uh, from the global south and from the uh, western left of uh, global transformations triggered in and around 1989. And uh, uh, the narrative of 1989 as international triumph of liberal democracy and capitalism 
makes us uh, uh, forget uh, that at the time this uh, this view was hardly consensual uh, as African and Latin American intellectuals, Western scholars, and even Eastern European dissidents warned about the democratic deficits and the new uh, uh, symbolic Berlin walls that would appear uh, in the aftermath of the collapse of the of state socialism. So to return to your question, we took up low-intensity democracy and applied it to the political and economic organization that shaped up in the in former socialist countries in the context of the negotiated transformation between reform communist elite and opposition uh, representatives. Uh, we use it to designate a form of democracy that relied on little popular uh, political participation and mostly ignored economic democracy and social justice. Such a path to change in Eastern Europe um, resulted in demobilization uh, among the population in the longer term. And sections of what were called at the time transitional societies perceived 1989 as being excluded from decision-making processes uh, uh, an impression or a perception that was um, made worse by, by the fact that the acquis communitaire, for example, during the uh, 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 EU accession was uh, largely not debated in Eastern European parliaments, um, was voted en bloc. And, and this um, negative impact of low intensity uh, democracy could be noticed um, uh, during the early elections in uh, some of the, let's say, champions of post-socialist transition in Poland or in Hungary, um, and this would fuel the narrative of betrayal by elites that became the basis for political uh, forces and sections of the population to reject in the late 2000s the settlement of 1989 uh, as a legitimate foundational moment for um, Eastern European Eastern Europe's journey away from from communism. Yeah, what I particularly appreciated in your analysis is that you're looking uh, outside of Eastern Europe after 1989 to see how uh, individuals in the global south and other places are commenting on what's happening and that they're concerned with it. So it's a multi-directional analysis. Um, and on that, I actually wanted to ask uh, about the transition model, because this obviously also relates to the global south and Maybe you could talk about the origins of that transition model, so the impetus for how uh, the transition was then going to proceed in Eastern Europe, and then some of the organizations, bodies, and states that were involved in promoting the transitional model. Yeah, that's, that's quite, a, quite an interesting story, actually, the origins of the transition model and even the origins of the very term transition for the developments across Eastern Europe around 1989. The term comes from the Spanish transición which betrays the origins of the concept, um, which come from the elite-guided exit from dictatorship in Spain in the mid-1970s and in Latin America in the 1980s. And these impressions from the Hispanic world were really crucial for the transitional elites in Eastern Europe, both for the reform communists and the democratic dissidents. Why? Because they showed that an elite-guided transition instead of a proper revolution allowed preserving political and economic stability, and it also showed to those who were close to the authoritarian government that they could maintain their privileged status in a post-transition society, or even become more prosperous than they ever could under state socialism. So liberal dissidents like, for example, Adam Michnik in Poland, they were really keen to point to the, the Spanish transition and sell this as a possible exit from, uh, from communism to, the, um, to those in power. 
And what you call the democracy industry certainly played a role in it as well. So there's uh, Shoros uh, Open Society Foundation, the, the German Liberal Endowment Foundation, or Ronald Reagan's National Endowment for Democracy. And all of them did promote this, uh, this uh, peaceful transition model as well. So they created platforms and held conferences in Spain and Eastern Europe, for example. Or they paid for trips for political activists from Eastern Europe to South Africa. But as I said earlier, we think it's problematic to see these Western think tanks and organizations as the true agents of Eastern Europe's transformation. So Polish, Hungarian or Russian intellectuals and politicians, they were, they were perfectly able to inform themselves about world developments and actively choose which models were, were possibly relevant for, for their own circumstances. And usually they, they knew their own circumstances much better after all than any project manager from the Open Society Foundation. So by examining the interactions between elites in Eastern Europe and the Global South, specifically elites in Latin America, prior to 1989, you demonstrate that Eastern Europe was far from being some tabula rasa and because, of course, these elites were quite knowledgeable about approaches to economic reform and, and thus didn't need Western specialists, um, policymakers, think tanks uh, to educate them about it. I'd like to move on to chapter three now, which explores Europeanization. And in this section, you examine how leaders in the global south responded to this process. Um, and I know you referred to this a bit earlier, but could you tell us uh, a little bit more about how Europeanization affects relations between Eastern Europe and countries in the global south? Yes, it's a bit of a tragic story, really. There was, there was a lot of enthusiastic talk about a return to Europe or a common European home amongst these transitional elites across Eastern Europe. And the problem of a return to Europe, however, if you will, was that this also meant a relative abandonment of those who are not European or were not seen as European. So within Europe, there could be people who are not white or people who are Muslim, for example. So, as we all know, there was a whole wave of racist attacks, especially in the early 1990s, against Vietnamese contract workers in East Germany, against gypsies in Hungary, or against African students in, in Russia. So, un Europeanization, unfortunately, had kind of an, an ugly underbelly, so to speak. And outside of Europe, Europeanization could mean the end of economic and geopolitical support from Moscow, also, or Prague for political leaders and activists of the Global South. So some political leaders in the Global South and also many intellectuals of, say, a more radical leftist bent in the Third World, they did not quite join in these celebrations on Europeanization because for them, there was nothing to, to celebrate here. Think of, I don't know, a anti-imperialist from, say, Tanzania would not really have anything positive to expect from a process of Europeanization in Eastern Europe. So um, I'm thinking about Europeanization in particular, how that influences then how certain countries in Eastern Europe respond to uh, the migration crisis, right? Uh, what's happening in 2015. Yeah, absolutely. Man. In, in a way, the end of the Cold War in Europe meant the dismantling of barbed wire and walls. But from, say, an African perspective, this meant not really a dismantling, but just a uh, moving of these walls and fences to a different place. And it's kind of, uh, from this outside of this non-European perspective, this was really a redrawing of the borders. And now um, they were confronted with a fortress Europe. 
So for them, this was not really for at least for the, for the progressive left in the global south. This was not really progress. And for for the populists who are in power in in, in Europe today, there's of this, of course this continuation that they now see themselves as the the true defenders or the defenders of of a true Europe and more Europe than the than the West, as it were, which they now see as really decadent because they're letting too many. And migrants from outside of Europe, and now these populists can stylize themselves as the defender of, of a true Europe. So in a way, there's also a continuity here that um, yeah, is ironic. And so Europeanization then becomes this very elastic term that can be used to include, but also to exclude, and has these potentially very damaging, dangerous connotations. Well, especially if you connect Europe to certain notions of um, a religious-based European identity or even a race-based European identity. And, uh, and this can or it has been abused by, by Eastern European populist leaders. Well, and this abuse, misuse of ideas about Europe shows no sign of ceasing in the near future. Okay, let's move on to Chapter 4, which examines self-determination. And you explore how self-determination was articulated by actors on different parts of the political spectrum. So could you provide some examples of this uh, from both before and after 1989? And in particular, discuss how discourses of self-determination were refashioned and reinscribed after 1989. Well, the interesting thing about self-determination and similarly also the ideas of post-colonialism is that it uh, experiences a a change in meaning, or at least in, in political uh, usage. So initially, self-determination is is a progressive concept, um, mostly used by the left against imperial control. And the interesting thing is that in Eastern Europe, this term, as other terms of the um, post-colonial jargon, are appropriated by the right. And now it's it's the mostly the the political right that uses this uh, this vocabulary of self determination for their own views on um, independent nations and their views on um, them standing up against the um, interference of uh, of the West into their own affairs, interference of the European Union in their internal affairs, and they use self determination also to say justify the exclusion of non-white or non-Christian immigrants into Poland or, or Hungary. So it's really a, an appropriation of an originally progressive term by the nationalist right that we see here in Eastern Europe. So, I would, uh, uh, can, I, can I add something here? Um, certainly. I would also say that self-determination in a, in a much more, let's say, elastic and, and ambiguous uh, uh, way is also instrumentalized by populists um, against the, the, the EU, which, is, uh, which has been seen increasingly as a colonizing um, entity um, because of its liberal policies, because of its multiculturalism, because of its stand on, on, on immigration. So what is interesting is that self-determination is not only being repurposed by the right, but has been um, uh, re uh, instrumentalized to rethink 
this uh, issue of uh, east-west convergence and the position of the east in, in Europe generally. And then it also becomes a basis for exclusionary policies, right? So mm-hmm. we have the right to determine whether or not we are going to accept gay marriage, right? And right, we right. have the right yeah. to determine whether or not we're going to accept your decadent, in quotes, yeah. policies. Yeah, yeah. exactly. For example... Uh, Jaroslav um, Kaczynski has argued that uh, the EU uh, is promoting a politics of death, referring to um, uh, abortion rights, referring to LGBTQ. Um, so this this idea of sovereignty, national sovereignty, um, has roots in this this, uh, trans- this transition of sovereign nation from a left wing concept or weapon in international politics to a right-wing weapon. And um, also, um, it's a way of reimagining Europe as a uh, a Europe of nations, rather than, you know, the idea of the EU kind of uh, melting pot. Well, and I think this is another really important contribution of your book, is that you interrogate these terms and you illustrate the various ways that they are used, or you can even say misused, Um, You know, because we typically associate terms such as Europeanization and self-determination with positive processes. But as you demonstrate in the book, they can also be the basis for exclusionary and, in fact, inhumane policies. And so they are not just these neutral terms or identified with progress. Uh, So I think this is really important as we reassess the uh, post-1989 period. I'd like to move on to Chapter 5 now, which is entitled Reverberations. And here you examine the global significance of 1989. So can you describe this this process? What happened in other parts of the world after 1989? Yeah, sure. There were plenty of reverberations of 1989 around the world, on all continents, really. Uh, way too many to list here. And I think, in fact, it's, it's difficult to think of a more momentous historical development uh, globally. And who knows, perhaps it was also the last European historical event with such truly global consequences. So perhaps let me just pick the two different two different key consequences of the, the fall of state socialism in Eastern Europe globally. And the first was the immediate loss of legitimacy that political leaders could draw from socialism. And this is very obvious if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, um, as an immediate reaction to the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, etc., dozens of governments immediately shelved their socialist or Marxist identity and they redefined themselves as nationalists. And sometimes they even allow multi-party systems and free elections and they open their, their economies. And socialist movements around the world lose their support from Eastern Europe, which speeds up a process of a, a de-radicalization of the global left. This hasn't started, or this didn't start with 1989. This had been already ongoing since the probably late 1970s, but 1989 really is a, um, a moment in which the de-radicalization of the global left reaches a um, it's it's extreme, really. And the second key consequence of global significance, I would say are the lessons that the communist political regimes in East Asia draw from the events in Eastern Europe, and especially in the Soviet Union. So in Vietnam, in Laos, and of course, most importantly, in China. And here, 1989 is seen as a warning 
a warning of the possible political and economic collapse that may come as a consequence of wrong-headed reforms. And the policies of perestroika especially are studied very, very careful in China today. So there are whole government-sponsored research institutes that do nothing but study perestroika or with the explicit political goal to avoid a Chinese Gorbachev. So um, two key global reverberations. An inspiration, kind of a, a, a boosting of the liberal idea on the one hand, but in East Asia, the exact opposite, um, the story of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the economic hardships of the 1990s in Russia and Eastern Europe are seen as, as a warning by the Chinese, especially the Chinese, the East Asian communist leaderships overall. I just find it incredible that 30 years after you know the collapse of the Soviet Union, they're still studying Gorbachev and they're concerned about it. I mean, it makes sense, obviously, that now you've discussed it, but I just, I, I just wow, that's kind of amazing to me. So do you think you could talk a little bit about how these reverberations were um, relevant with respect to international aid, both inside Eastern Europe and outside? So, uh, of course, international aid in Eastern Europe was tied to political conditionality. Uh, and you discuss in this chapter how that had global implications. Well, um, first of all, we have to clarify something that maybe it's obvious now, but um, uh, it has been a bit clouded by in, in some some earlier accounts. Uh, conditionality as part of the rise of Washington consensus or uh, of the post Cold War liberal order was not the was not the outcome of post socialist transformation in Eastern Europe. Um, it was in fact uh, the com- the coming of conditionality was a much longer uh, process uh, that was first and foremost economic and remains so even though in the 1990s it was linked to democratization. Um, conditionality appeared as the IMF and the World Bank gained uh, a central role in global politics uh, around the mid 1980s, uh, when they began to push for liberalization, marketization, austerity, and these two institutions advocated for what was called at the time structural adjustments of economies, especially in Latin America and Africa, that emphasized cutting state expenditure. Uh, implicitly affecting welfare uh, and um, and social uh, economic democracy. Um, the international intervention from the IMF and or the World Bank uh, based on this conditionality in Eastern Europe was already in place before 1989 in countries such as Poland or Hungary because of the debt crisis. And in fact, if you think about Romania's thing of, of, of the falling debt, it was exactly to avoid this type of uh, conditionality. Um, so in this context, by 1989, uh, prominent reform communist elites and some dissidents had become convinced that the global trend was toward free market and capitalism. And as authoritarian uh, regimes were on the way in Southern Europe, in Latin America, in East Asia, both Eastern Europeans and the IMF and the World Bank linked up neoliberalism with democratization. So the transformation of Eastern in Eastern Europe confirmed the new recipe of development, free market and liberal democracy. In this sense, 1989 in the East radicalized the West's commitment to neoliberalism at home and across the world. For instance, in 2000, uh, the outgoing Clinton administration assembled in Warsaw 
the World Forum on Democracy that brought together representatives from 107 countries. The event proclaimed a pre-existing global state of things and a new vision for the 21st century, the orthodoxy of irrepressible markets and liberalism as engines for post-Cold War history. Great. Well, I want to go back actually to 1989 as a template. So Tobias, you discussed how of course, there's concerns in places like China about a 1989 breaking out there. But how has 1989 served as a positive model, as a template for events in other parts of the globe? Yeah, we see this quite a lot, actually, through the 1990s until, I would say, 2011, until the Arab Spring. So it starts in the 1990s with the color revolution in places like Ukraine or Georgia and Serbia. And you can clearly see how both activists in these countries, but then also external actors, and that is um, Western um, think tanks, organizations, and also the former activists from Eastern Europe, um, invoke the example of 1989 to say, here we still have these uh, um, hangovers from, uh, from the Cold War. We need to get rid of these authoritarian regimes here and bring in markets and democracy as we have done this in 1989 in Eastern Europe. Um, this is still um, more or less successful in the, in the color revolutions, but then the other examples where 1989 serves as a template, these were probably rather failures. And one example is the, the invasion of Iraq, and you can also show that um, those who were behind the, the the concepts, the ideas of the invasion of, of Iraq, that these were people who were um, kind of cold warriors back in, in, in power. And it was the, 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 this, the, the perception of 1989, which they projected onto a rather different geopolitical context. And they also saw people like or dictators like Saddam Hussein as... Um, dictators who had somehow managed to survive in 1989 and now had to be toppled, like Ceausescu had to be toppled in, uh, in Romania, for example. And you can also see that in the case of Iraq, then um, there's a, a lot more support for the invasion from Eastern Europe than there is from, from the West. And also you can see that uh, even former dissidents from socialist countries, um, Adam Michnik in Poland, for example, or Liao uh, Xiaobo from, from China, and rhetorically support the invasion of, of Iraq, which um, uh, probably can be considered a, a geopolitical failure. And the last time that we found references to 1989 as a template is during the Arab Spring. So this is the, the last time that there are references to the events in Eastern Europe as a possible model for the toppling of dictators elsewhere and the introduction of markets and democracy with some help from outside. Yeah, the part on Iraq really struck me. I was in Romania at the time during the invasion in 2003, and I got into some heated discussions with Romanians who were advocates of it, and I was critical, and, and they kind of basically said, well, you don't understand what it's like to live under a dictatorship, so how dare you be critical? So we kind of left it at that. Okay, the dissidents. Um, what happens to them after 1989? Well, this, this question takes us back to this issue of other 1989. So first, we kind of like have to wonder what we mean by dissidents. If we refer to the intellectuals who criticize state socialism 
and became the faces of 1989, people such as Václav Havel, Elvalesa, Jelyo they fared well, uh, making the transition from the prison to the castle, so to speak, uh, becoming state leaders in post-1989 uh, democracies. However, if we think in broader terms, taking into account the diversity of opposition movements in Eastern Europe, the picture is much more complicated. And this is where I get to the, to the other 1989s again. Uh, if we take, for instance, groups such as Freedom and Peace uh, or um, the Public Against Violence, the leading Slovak uh, opposition group in 1989, most of their leaders withdrew from politics, disenchanted with the transformation, with what we talked about earlier as the low-intensity democracy of post-socialism. Um, if we look at other members of the opposition, such as the conservative nationalists um, uh, from Fighting Solidarity or Young Poland Movement, they opposed the roundtable and were among the first to argue that 1989 was a sellout by distance to second and third rank uh, communist elites. Uh, these conservatives inspired the first claims about the failed transition, a concept that became um, uh, dominant in the 2000s, uh, especially in Poland, um, and uh, then became the basis for uh, illiberal authoritarians' rise to power in the 2010s. There is also the example of Viktor Orban, who, as a young leader, rose to fame with his anti-communist speech at the reburial of Imre Nog in 1989, the leader of the Hungarian Revolution from 1956. Um, and um, Orban, after that, for more than a decade, was an exemplary young liberal in the eyes of the West, personifying the very success of the post-1989 transformation. However, since 2002, when he narrowly uh, lost elections, he radicalized, now becoming the poster boy of liberal populism worldwide. There are also dissidents such as Jacek Kuron and Karol Modelewski were disenchanted with this liberal capitalist transformation. Uh, Kuron regretted his involvement in the implementation of the so-called shock therapy. He was part of uh, the, the first uh, post-1989 uh, government. However, himself in the early 2000s um, called for a new revolution to liberate Eastern Europe from post-socialist predatory capitalism and to rejuvenate what he called the natural self-organization of civil society. The writings of Havel, Kuron, or Dan Petrescu in Romania uh, have been recuperated by the new left, for example, uh, in Eastern Europe, by young thinkers who since the late 2000s have sought to rethink democracy and political participation, partly drawing on the anti-authoritarian and radical transitions of dissidents. There is yet another facet to the afterlife of dissidents, a darker one. In some cases, former dissidents, even those who did not side with conservative populists, embraced the language of Islamic danger to the so-called European civilization. And I have two examples. In Romania, Ana Blandiana, a dissident who after 1989 became a prominent figure in the struggle against the, the National Salvation Front, the successors of the Romanian Communist Party, who embraced this decline of the West uh, narrative. But also in Hungary, Georgi Konrad, long celebrated in the West as a champion of liberal democracy. So to bring this all together, I would say that the complicated afterlife of distance, of anti-communist opposition, serves as a warning about simplifying the revolutions of 1989 and their legacies. Liberalism was just one vision floating at the time, and even liberalism, as we 
can say, see nowadays, and um, not only in the East, but also in the West, has its blind spots when it comes to colonialism and, and racism. Yeah, and now I want to teach a class on the afterlives of the dissidents. <laughs> There's so much there. It's such a rich topic, um, if not in certain cases depressing as well. So we discussed some of the uh, ways in which some socialist states successfully resisted 1989-style revolutions uh, through force, but they also did so through softer policies, and they were able actually to maintain their legitimacy in this way. So could you elaborate on that? I would say places, states, governments like those of Vietnam and China maintain their legitimacy or their their power through two means. One, violence, so the cracking down of the protest movement and the persecution of uh, oppositionists. And the second factor is uh, economic growth. And how did they manage to get this economic growth? By introducing markets and by using a huge source of cheap labor that both, both of these countries had. So by using cheap labor from the countryside, and letting these people work in factories for the uh, for the global market, um, they managed to create impressive economic growth under a dictatorship. You quite often hear this this uh, this argument that uh, Eastern Europe, especially Russia, should have gone the Chinese path. I think this doesn't make much sense because the conditions were really fundamentally different in in Russia at the time. So it's really a very a quite quite a separate case, I'd say, and. Probably shouldn't give too much credit to the communist rulers for the uh, for the economic growth that uh, these countries experienced. Um, in a way, they became capitalists as well, and just they maintained their um, vertical property control of the of the one party system. Well, and certainly they have captive markets. I uh, don't know what would happen to the legitimacy of U.S. leadership if we didn't have China <laughs> to trade with. I would, I would like I would like to add something here. I think that there are two two additional elements to 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 uh, how uh, legitimacy was built, especially in China, but um, I think it might uh, apply to Vietnam as well. First, in contrast to Eastern Europe, there was no West uh, as counterexample on the doorsteps. So I think that uh, as as we were looking at some of the memoirs of uh, Eastern European party elites, reform party elites. Uh, by late 1970s and especially in the 1980s, they're interacting a lot with, especially with social democrats, Western social democrats, and they basically lost faith in in the um, legitimacy of uh, socialism as a viable like state socialism as a viable uh, recipe for for modernization. And I think that in China, this loss of faith did not happen. Uh, and we have to take into consideration also that the Deng Xiaoping generation is a generation that had gone through the civil war, that had gone through the harsh periods of building socialism. The elites that were in power uh, for the most part or that engineered the roundtables in places such as Hungary or Poland, they were second or third generation. Um, and I think that it was very important that the West was there and that there were socialist governments in the West that were successful in bringing this combination of democracy and capitalism. And this put pressure on Eastern Europeans. It didn't put pressure on the Chinese uh, leadership. And another source which is of legitimacy for China, uh, which is maybe more recent, 
is nationalism. The, the, I, I think that especially since the uh, Olympics in, in Beijing, nationalism has been central to building regime legitimacy, and especially uh, during Xi Jinping's uh, rule, this idea of China as a global power. Uh, and I think that this plays uh, a significant role also in, in the stability of the regime. Those are great points. And of course, I was thinking of Ceausescu when you mentioned nationalism. Uh, let's move on to Chapter 6, which explores Eastern Europe's ambiguous convergence with the West. So could you unpack that? Okay, I'll try to, to deal with this. Um, the term, uh, in our view, um, ambiguous convergence encapsulates the paradoxes and the fragilities of the consensus over the basics of post-socialist change in Eastern Europe that existed at least until the, the, the end of the 2000s. So these basics were EU-NATO integration, free market, rule of law, and minority rights. However, this, this convergence, and this is where the ambiguity comes in, had its losers in the former socialist space. First of all, Southeastern Europe, and especially after Romania and Bulgaria acceded to the EU in 2007, other countries in the region were mostly left out. Only Croatia joined the EU in 2013, and Albania and North Macedonia joined NATO in 2009, respectively 2020. Uh, the very notion of Western Balkans was invented to comprise the, the losers of, of, of this, this convergence of former Yugoslav republics, Albania, Moldova, uh, and while it suggests a future with the West, um, the countries grouped under this umbrella uh, has been caught in a, in a limbo, a slope of Europeanness, not yet fully being fully up to the political and economic standards of the EU. In a sense, very similar to the 1990s for, for uh, the current members of the EU. At the same time, the uh, ambiguous convergence also covers that the, the collapse of early optimism uh, of convergence between Russia and the West uh, that had dissipated by, by late 1990s. In 1998, uh, uh, an influential Russian politician, Vyacheslav Nikonov, uh, was arguing that the common European home was implemented without Russia's participation. This divergence between the West and Russia set the ground for the rise of alternative uh, an alternative geopolitical imagination, Eurasianism, that was first advocated by Evgeny Primakov, but then became the platform for the springboard for the global ambitions of Vladimir Putin as he created the Eurasian uh, Economic Union that was designed, imitated the EU and aimed to um, expand uh, common spaces of, of security and business cooperation in the former Soviet sphere. This new globality sought by Russia via Eurasianism allowed Putin to call the EU the lesser Europe during the 2010s. So the ambiguities of 1990s reached the apex in the divergence between the, the, uh, Russia and the West. There is an, uh, an addi additional layer to this ambiguous convergence term. Um, and that this is something that we've already hinted at. Uh, meaning that the embrace, uh, the, the fact that the embrace of a liberal democratic model um, was never as uniform and unconditional as presupposed by the triumphalist narratives of 1989. And these attitudes were partially reactions to the apparent impossibility of 
uh, Eastern European countries to escape the designation and treatment as less developed European countries. Critics of neoliberalism, as we mentioned already, conservatives, populists, old or new left, were policed out of the, the mainstream as dissent from accession threatened isolation on the continent. But after uh, uh, communist states joined the EU 2004-2007 and faced the 2008 economic crisis, both socialist governments and the EU itself faced once again this powerful criticism that was latent of the, uh, the increased inequalities of uh, post-1989 uh, societies. And with the impact of conditionality gone, as Brussels did not have any clear mechanisms of accountability after accession, um, the, the way was, was clear for the reaffirmation and expansion of past reservations and opposition uh, toward the East convergence with the West, which fueled later illiberal deviations. To conclude here, I would say that this ambiguous uh, a convergence term is basically setting up, is, is, is trying to foreshadow uh, or to show this longer history of the roots of the counter uh, revolution of populism uh, from the 2010s. I actually had a follow up uh, question on this issue of convergence and also divergence because you note that associated with this process of Europeanization is also the straying of particular uh, Eastern European countries uh, from the EU and from the West more generally. So maybe you can provide an example or two of alliances that have been formed that don't include countries in Europe? Right. Um, you mentioned Russia, but um, outside right, of Russia. Right. Um, outside of Russia is uh, China, of course. Um, also, there, there are alliances with, uh, with with Turkey, more recently, um, India uh, has has uh, attracted the attention of uh, uh, Kaczynski and Orban. India itself being ruled by uh, a populist uh, authoritarian Narendra uh, Modi. And but the the bottom line here is that um, this divergence it is not a divergence from the West per se. It is a divergence from the Western liberal democratic model because populists uh, across Eastern Europe, they're not divergent from their Western counterparts who are arguing basically the same thing in Italy, in France, in, in Britain, in the, in the US. So these alternative uh, uh, global alliances with Russia, with China, with Turkey, with India, along with uh, the, the networks of alt-right, of neo-authoritarianism, of uh, ultra-conservatives, extreme right, between the East and the West, basically create an alternative world that legitimizes the visions that populists such as uh, Orban or Kaczynski have about their own countries, their position uh, in, in Europe, and their, their uh, global uh, position. And they also legitimize this view that, in fact, Eastern Europe and these illiberal regimes are the new rampart for the defense of what we were earlier saying, a European civilization or a West that is white, that is Christian, that is heterosexual, and that is fundamentally ethnocentric. So a convergence that's based on these 
negative policies um, and discourses, xenophobia, obviously, anti-LGBTQ sentiments and such. So convergence is not always necessarily a positive thing in this case. So given all of what you've discussed about your book, I'll ask my final question. Do you think 1989 is still a salient or meaningful point of reference? That's a good question. Um, And I'm not sure how salient it is today. So currently, probably not terribly, because the world is facing quite different challenges. And we actually found that the relevance of 1989 in historic memory was always more pronounced in the West than it was in the East. And what is more, the relevance seemed to decrease from anniversary to anniversary. So for the current governments in Poland and Hungary, for example, who after all see 1989 as a betrayal of the people by the transitional elites, so the reform communists and the liberal intelligentsia. So there were hardly any official celebrations in, in 2019. Um, there were, however, initiatives at local level. So in the big Polish cities, for example, which are much more liberal than the countryside, there were sev- several celebrations organized at a municipal level. And in Romania and in the Czech Republic, there were large pro-democracy manifestations that um, commemorated the transition of 1989 and also used the, the imagery and the slogans of 1989. So yes, there were still references, but I wonder if 1989 will still provide much political capital for anyone in the future. I'm not, I'm not sure about this. I, I, I would agree with Tobias that um, 1989 does not offer much in terms of legitimacy for the future or but I also I was surprised recently I was I was doing some research on um, uh, various discourses in Romania and in Bulgaria and the idea of 1989 as a fresh start for democracy I think it's still very powerful in the region and it's very powerful across the political field uh, in the sense that uh, uh, for example, uh, Orban is trying to uh, position himself at the center of 1989 in order to show that from the beginning we were we've been pursuing uh, this 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 uh, political trajectory or this ideological uh, uh, um, narrative. But at the same time, the new left, as I was mentioning earlier, heavily relies on on 1989 as a moment of true popular sovereignty or of affirmation of true popular sovereignty that needs to be recuperated against this this plutocratic elites that have captured Eastern European states. And of course, 1989 is powerful, uh, as Tobias mentioned, it was powerful in in places such as Slovakia or Romania um, to legitimize critiques of political establishments or of the status quo. So I would say that what is surprising to me is that 1989 remains powerful in terms of this idea of reinventing politics, reimagining politics. As a political project per se, it's not. And, and I don't think that people who go on the streets in Bucharest, in Prague, in Budapest, in Sofia are, are uh, um, trying to defend or to, to, yeah, trying to defend the liberal democratic capitalist version of 1989. But they do think that 1989 is, and this is surprising to me, is a valid starting point for reimagining politics. So 1989 retains 
a good deal of symbolic capital among the population and also because of the possibilities associated with it or that were associated with it at that time that they feel some of their leaders, governments have strayed from. Well, perhaps 1989 faces the same fate as 1968 in public memory. I think no one really, or very few people still refer to 1968 positively. This has kind of disappeared, but it's still a very important rallying point for those who see this as kind of the, the beginning of the decadence of, of, of the West. And perhaps something similar will happen with 1989, that in the, in the long run, it will no longer be a positive point of reference, but it will be um, still a good story to tell for those who seek capital from this uh, story of betrayal in 1989. Just an idea off the top of my head. I'm not sure if that is really so convincing. I think it's a rich term. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're basically out of time. So perhaps you could take the next couple minutes and discuss your current research projects. Bogdan, would you like to go first? Okay, thank you. Well, at the at the moment, uh, and over the summer, I'm hoping to finish uh, a book manuscript, uh, the book manuscript that uh, you mentioned uh, at the beginning uh, of this interview, Balkan Imaginations, UNESCO and Global Cold War. And this is something that I've been working on for almost forever. I think that since 2014, but uh, it has been, the work has been interrupted by various projects and among, among them, this is, book that we worked together on that appears at Cambridge University Press. And, and this, this uh, manuscript uh, argues that Southeast European elite search since the 1960s to overcome peripheral status was linked to Balkan scholars and politicians, transregional entanglements uh, facilitated by UNESCO and by shifting geographies of the Cold War. In parallel, I'm also trying to develop another project that focuses on Romania's participation and an impact on global politics, global health politics after 1989. And I hope that by the end of the year, I'll have two or three publications coming out that have been long in the process of making. Excellent. Looking forward to reading them. Tobias? I still work along similar lines, really. So I now have a small research group in Berlin. And we look at the intellectual history of liberal economists in Eastern Europe, Russia and China, and uh, the ways in which they inspired each other, as opposed to the usual story of uh, mimicking the West. And we look at the often failed attempts of these uh, liberal economists to influence economic policy in the transition period in the 1980s and 1990s. Well, also fascinating, and I look forward to reading your work that comes out of that uh, and your team's work. Okay, well, uh, Bogdan and Tobias, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with me about your book. And um, I wish you all the best with your current projects. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. 